0: Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we have freelance writer Rowan Kaiser. Rowan, welcome to the show. It's nice to be back. We also welcome back freelance writer Kat Bailey. Kat, good to have you back.
1: No longer freelance writer. I'm an editor over at US Gamer now. Oh, God, when did that happen? I'm sorry. That happened a couple weeks ago, but uh, <laughs> thank you very much, though. again yeah, I feel like a piece of shit now. Uh, congrats on the gig. It's okay. Like, not everybody knows.
0: Uh, And finally, we welcome back our old friend Jason Wilson, managing editor of GamesBeat over at VentureBeat.
2: Hi!
0: Hi, Jason. Sorry, I've had lots of caffeine. Rowan just asked a question about the curious ritual we have on Through His Head of clapping in. Uh, for our producer, we used to do a count in, and then everyone would clap. And there's always mass confusion. And it was the sort of Keystone Cops pre-show ritual we had uh, that never quite worked. And I think our producer finally got exasperated enough that he was just like, you know what, stop it. Just don't don't do the <laughs> count in anymore. Just start the show. Start talking. I'll deal with it. Uh, I think he got tired of hearing me explain. <laughs> what we were trying to do every episode uh so no we no longer do some of our uh more curious pre-show rituals uh but the tequila shots are all okay yes they are actually encouraged uh if you've got some mezcal that's that's just perfect uh, so anyway, today we're taking a look at Warlock 2 The Exiled, which is a sequel to Warlock Master of the Arcane. It's developed by Inoko and published by Paradox Interactive, and it's a 4X strategy series. And I think the consensus the last time we talked about Warlock, uh, the first one, was that it was a decent effort, but didn't entirely hang together as a 4X strategy game or as a fantasy strategy game in some ways. Uh, but Warlock 2 is a very different sort of game. Rowan, you played the first game and you've played this latest one. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Warlock series is and then what this new one, uh, The Exiled, uh, what does it bring to the table?
3: The best way to describe the Warlock games is that they are fantasy combat-based Civilization V. They look almost exactly like Civ V, not as shiny, but um, the same sort of perspective and uh, uh, hex-based maps. And they have the same one unit per hex uh, limitation which uh, pretty much defines this game really. They're just set in a strategy world uh, the world of Ardania which is also used by Majesty and some other spin-offs and they're entirely focused on military conquest or at least almost entirely Like there's there's a little tiny bit of diplomacy there's some research and I think you can cast a spell that automatically wins you the game but you'll still be <laughs> Conquering cities through the entire the entire game is basically marching around little maps and conquering cities, and you do this with um, kind of joyously generic fantasy units of minotaurs and dwarves and elves and rangers and so on. I think one of the other, yeah, this is all detailed stuff. That's that's pretty much the the main overview: marching marching minotaurs around to destroy cities. Yeah, it's that's what warlock is.
0: It's a good time, and uh, you know, I think my big objections to the first game were that they had some cool ideas, but there, there were entire segments of it that didn't really fit into the core game, as it were. Like, the bit... The, 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 the big thing about Warlock was that there was this the promise of this idea that you would be traveling between realms with your armies. You started in sort of a generic fantasy world, but then you'd go to different planes of reality or whatever. And there was some crazy stuff waiting for you beyond those like, trans-dimensional portals. Uh, and it was, it was kind of a cool idea, except as I played the game, I realized I never really had a good enough reason to go into the portals. Uh, and yeah. so it became this weird sideline to the game that I just never bothered with.
3: Yeah, it was like once you had a good enough army to fight off the dragons in the magical portal realms, like you had a good enough army to just conquer Ardania where you were. So uh, they were, they were a nice idea, but sort of sidelined.
0: Yeah, and I think this this new one is definitely an effort to sort of put those other. Realms uh, front and center. It's really kind of uh, the point of the game. Really, is now to sort of have your army travel through this chain of worlds. Uh, Jason, you were you were with us the last time we talked about uh, Master of the Arcane, and I think you actually liked it a little bit more than we did. How do you feel about uh, what? What are the big changes they made here, and uh, how do they how do they feel for you? Well, they're very interesting to me
2: because what I what I kind of considered it was like. Fantasy, you know, fantasy civ with island topping because that's exactly how it feels to me. Like, you know, the old World War Two strategy that the United States portrayed in the Pacific. And I, I had a lot of fun with it. It could be really challenging because you had to essentially go from one realm to another. And these would be, these shards would be these little masses of land, and you would be having to establish not only a beachhead, but encounter what was there. It could be an ally, it could be a bunch of evil monsters, or it could be the mages who are out trying to stop you. And for me, I had a lot of fun with that. I thought it was a very interesting way to spin the original war, um, warlock.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, Jason's island-hopping analogy is apt in a way that uh, essentially you have a supply chain and there's a bit of a risk-reward element going on, because as you go, it stretches out increasingly. And if you get hit a couple of places back, uh, you could be in trouble, put it that way. So um, I I thought it was an interesting take on the forex genre.
0: Yeah, did you find that it sort of, that that sort of, long chain uh, that you you would develop as you sort of move from realm to realm, did you find it sort of encouraged um, almost more of like a tactical RPG approach where like, uh, certainly my experience was because my armies got so isolated from any sort of reinforcements that it kind of felt like my army wasn't just an army but it was like an adventuring party and it really needed to be able to sustain itself there out in the field because once I sent it off, it was kind of on its own and reinforcements had a long walk did did you find that that actually sort of heightened the connection to like the rpg elements
1: yeah to an extent um i one thing that i people call this like what civ 5 with swords and shields and that sort of thing um and i think that that's actually one element that goes a long way toward setting this game apart from civ 5 is the more tactical element because my experience, at least with Civ Five is that if you wanted to con- go Conquest, generally it was a matter of technology and superior numbers and just rolling your enemy and not as much actually having to make plans, having to deal with various contingencies. Uh, yeah, that's one of the biggest differences for me.
0: Yeah, and I think in Civ Five there's definitely a... Um... I think you're right about that because I've always sort of felt in Civ five at least, if you are, if the fight is a fair one, you've kind of already screwed up by fighting the war in the first place. Uh, you know, you if you're if you're sort of slogging through a an equally matched war in Civ, given the time limits you're under and everything, you're you're kind of losing the game uh, as you as you churn through that, unless you can get some sort of decisive result. Here, it definitely does feel like. Um, well, you know, sir. Sort of to Rowan's point earlier, combat really this all this combat and warfare and competition is is what this kind of comes down to. And dealing with the stuff you find on the uh, the sort of um, random enemies, the, bar- the barbarians, as it were, uh, fighting those is, is kind of the central point. And you know, for my part, I ended up I ended up enjoying the combat uh, quite a bit. I I enjoyed the fact that. You know, as as you're out there campaigning, uh, both through the use of heroes and through the use of like your units gaining experience, I definitely sort of got a little more attached to my armies as, as they stayed out there. I definitely got this feeling of. Um, you know, again, sort of like an RPG party. After a point, these weren't just archers to me. These were like, oh, these were my elite archers with all the different upgrades that allowed them to just like murder people from a distance. And God help me if they died. I I really kind of enjoyed that. Whereas in in Civ, I've I've never felt really all that invested in the fate of a particular unit uh, because, you know, they kind of come and go. And really they're an expression of what your industry is like. Uh, but here I definitely found myself getting very conscious of trying to keep losses down and keep it so that my army kept leveling up, kept getting better. Uh, and that kind of became the focal point of the game for me.
2: What I found was really interesting for me was, um, when Kat was just touching about the, how it felt like, or Rob was touching on how it felt like an RPG party. Um, especially when you bring in the hero units that you could hire, um, you have three or four of those and he gives them some weapons or other artifacts that you found. And it really does feel like you've got this group of um, characters and not just units who are marching around exploring these
0: worlds. Did, how do people feel about the heroes? Cause I was sort of surprised that like, yeah, you expect a hero to be powerful, but these heroes have the strength of 10 Grinches really, you know what I mean? It's they're, they're, they're really, uh, they're really beefy characters. Did, did, did that work for everyone?
1: You know, when it comes to having a hero character, I think that as a designer, you're kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place, right? Because I think players expect heroes to be really strong. And as a designer, you have to balance that element of, okay, this, this character hero has to be able to wreck things without being able to change the game on their own and basically be able to solo it. And I never got the feeling that I could solo the whole game with just my hero. So in that regard, no, I don't. It, it worked for me. Or in that regard, yes, it did work for me.
3: But one of the things that I tend to like about uh, these two games is that there's a sort of, I don't know, relaxation about them. They they don't seem to have the pressure of civilization. And I think uh, when you mentioned the time limit in Civ, Rob that kind of made it click because in civilization you generally have that uh uh like ticking tech time thing where you know it's like it's 1200 AD and I don't have you know knights yet I'm in big trouble where this you just kind of get units as they come and that there's sort of a, a feeling that the whole game kind of comes as it comes and uh it's not like I'm racing against my rivals, even though there is an aspect of that. Uh, but instead it's more just a I I am, you know, using whatever I happen to have on whatever's in front of me right there. So the heroes kind of fit in that in the same way that, you know, you can randomly get a lot of different units that seem super overpowered at first, and then eventually you'll run into a place where, you know, they're just kind of there. Like they might still be your best unit, but they're not going to be able to, uh, stand up against an entire army alone like they had been able to um it's it's like a it's like a weird imbalance by um you know pressure uh that will eventually cause that balance to reassert itself and um So, like, by the time you get... The the heroes come in three tiers. There's, like, a 200-gold tier, a 700-gold tier, and a 2,000-gold tier for recruiting them. And by the time you're up to, like, the 2,000-gold tiers, you're, you know, fighting against the last enemies who have 500 hit points and stuff, unless you happen to get really lucky. But eventually, you will fight against those last enemies with the 500 hit points. Uh, So, it's... It's kind of just happy in how it's not, like, a... Uh, strategy game that has to be super duper balanced and i'm okay with that
0: you know maybe balance and fantasy aren't always um as compatible you know they're, they're 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 not easy they're not easy that's not an easy circle to square as it were yeah. um you know to to cat's point yeah if if a hero unit doesn't feel awesome then it's not really a hero unit. It doesn't really fulfill that part of the fantasy, uh, but at the same time, yeah, if it gets out of control, then you don't you don't have a strategy game. And I guess, you know, this does kind of you're you're right. This kind of ends up backing its way into game balance because I guess I was still thinking of my you know sort of the early game experiences where. I'd have my regular uh, cannon fodder units out there, and they would just be chipping away at uh, you know enemy units, some monsters, whatever, and they'd slowly be knocking their bars down. And then my like uh, you know goblin sharpshooter would show up and take one shot and just obliterate whatever he was targeting. Uh, now we could only attack once per turn, so that was kind of the, the you know that's the limitation, but. You know, it was like, okay, so why did I even need the rest of these guys? But that starts to change as the the battles get bigger, and uh, then you do end up with uh, some of my favorite experiences in, in this game, which is that eventually you go through a portal, and through each threes portal, you're kind of in this new world, a different theme, and you know, before too long, you start encountering things that are really more than you know, really more than you can handle, and I always kind of enjoyed. Uh, even though it was a little frustrating, encountering, like, a frost giant or something and being like, okay, well, let's see how this goes. And you take a shot at it with your best unit and, like, you do, you know, like, a a fair bit of damage based on what you've done before and the hit bar, like, barely moves. You know, still bright green, barely put a scratch on this thing. Then it hits back and just, like, instant insta-kills, like, you know, one of your basic units. And you realize, oh okay, this is... Now Now we're in a true fantasy story here. Now we just... We entered a different ch- level of the Monsters Compendium, and uh, I need to get the hell out of here.
3: I had... Uh, uh... Something like that happened when I went in. I started a new game, you know, took control of my initial shard, which is usually super easy, and uh, started sending my units through the first portal. And two hexes away, or three hexes away from the portal was uh, a Snow Queen, I think they're called. Oh, the Snow Ice Queen. Queen. And so basically, unless I moved any unit down a specific route through there, she would one-shot all of them because she has the ranged attack and she was just sitting there you know gleefully taking out all of my level one archers and uh i ended up restarting that game because when i finally got my units around her into a different portal um i ran into uh some of my rivals who had like taken control of six shards already and i was just like nope but um you know that's I, i ended up starting a whole bunch of different games because of technical reasons uh this game did not really get along with my older video card and i came into a newer one and it happened to work which was very exciting uh for some reason despite seeming simple it's pretty heavy on the uh on the power use in your computer
0: i'm not entirely sure how stable the release build was because uh, i definitely had a few crash crashes to desktop and um yeah, it wasn't it wasn't terribly stable for me at first either. Now it is. Uh, now it's yeah. now it's running pretty well. But it, at launch, I definitely uh, was surprised how many little glitches I was encountering. You know, that's what was weird because I didn't have that many glitches playing it before release.
2: Um, but it was definitely resource intensive. I, I have no idea what was what was weird about this. But usually, you know, you play a game and then you you, you know you all tab out and then you do something else. You can't really do that. It slows everything down. You know. When you have a browser up,
1: I didn't really notice because my poor gaming laptop hates everything.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah the alt tabbing just doesn't work in Warlock 2. Like, you can get out and you can't get back in
0: oh that's not good well that's that's a good thing to know i i don't alt tab that often because i've just been conditioned by so many dodgy releases uh from from like lower tier developers and everything i'm just like no just unless something's crucial don't alt tab uh play on um oh sometimes you get tweets that's crucial uh, (laughs) yes it's very important um hang on though you so you mentioned something about sort of giving up on a couple games because uh so there, there was bad news through the portal and it was becoming a uh, bit that of... was the only one that i gave up oh sorry that was the only one that i gave up because
3: of specifically like the bad news through the portals most yeah. of the time it was like i would run into a crash for my computer overheating i'd leave it for a few hours then i'd be like yeah why not just start a new game
0: whoa um, wow this thing really messed with your machine
3: yeah, it, it was bad. I, I was supposed to review it and I had to say that I couldn't because it's overheating things and that, that will probably lead to bad things. But I tried it again when I got invited to the podcast and I had the new video card and yeah. that seemed to do the trick. Uh, um, the old video card was the uh, GeForce 550 if any listeners are having similar issues. You know,
0: ironically, actually um I, 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 it stopped crashing right about when I upgraded to a, a 760 or something like that. So that might be uh part 770. So that might be part of it. Uh but anyway, through the through the with the whole like um things getting hairy once you got through the through the portals. Uh, I definitely I'm curious if this happened to anyone else. There were a few times where I would go through the portal, and either because of the monster distribution or because of AI enemies, um, just the the place around the gate, but you know the 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 portal itself was so packed with massive dangers that it became really brutally hard and actually kind of annoyingly hard to even make any progress beyond the portal itself. Did anyone else sort of run into sort of a hard stop where it was just so dangerous around the in, in the neighborhood of the portal that you just couldn't move anywhere? Giant turtles. Yes.
2: There's this one instance where, um, I go to the, I start on the, my shard and then go to the next shard and it's got four hexes of land and then it's got water. And in that water was a giant turtle. And that turtle just decided you know, to take vengeance on humans for making turtle soup all these centuries and blasted every unit I had. And on my shard, there's no water, so I had no harbor. So I had no way to get into the water. And it, it, it just made everything so exceptionally difficult. It became a, well, I could either wait and get some hero units while everything runs rampant on these other shards, or I could just go screw this and start over which I did.
3: I usually only had situations like that when I kind of messed up strategically. Um, like I, I feel confident I've taken over this shard. It's got two portals. I'm going to split my army up and send half through one and half through the other. And both of them come back with their tails between their legs.
1: No, not really. <laughs> but I unfortunately did not have as much time to play as I would have liked.
3: Oh, and it did happen to be on the final shard when I made it to there. Um, But I figured that's kind of to be expected and sort of the game getting its revenge for me running rampant with my superheroes for a while.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think this was definitely sort of where the um, island hopping uh, metaphor became a little too real for me. (laughs) <laughs> i guess is you know if you know about the pacific campaign obviously you know when you're when you're hopping from island to island uh, there's not a lot of tricky or delicate ways you can go about it it becomes a brute force thing where you just send everyone uh against this position and, and just try to break through and there were a few times where yeah I, I just was having trouble getting anywhere and in particular um what i noticed that it I don't know if the AI had a predisposition to do this. Certainly, it's a crafty move, and I did it myself uh, in a few places. But they build a settlement near a gate so that the moment you came through, uh, you'd be on their territory. And then they'd have like uh, a ton of forts or um, arcane towers that basically are like... Um, Like, magic missile launchers or whatever. And so the moment my guys would come through, uh, they'd all be sort of clustered around this portal. And on turn one, following the the arrival in this new realm, um, you know, first all the enemy fortifications, the city, uh, two forts, an arcane tower, they'd all fire and do massive damage. And then the enemy units would get their turn. And trying to break through those defenses, trying to break down the forts, then take out the enemy army, then grind down the city, because it's very much like Civ Five in this respect. You have to sort of, like, hammer at the city until it falls. Um, it was really, really difficult uh, in, in a few places. And to, to the point where it, it's, you know, it definitely... It became obnoxious just a little bit because a lot of times the solution was sit back and hide in your own territory and build up to yeah tech up wait till your wait till your cities sort of grow and you can you can build higher level units and I I just found that a little um what anytime you're sort of sitting back and passively waiting to get the big thing that's going to let you make progress that that's not a good feeling. So
3: did you um did this happen with monster cities or did this happen with uh rival mages cities Both. okay actually i, I think I...
0: mostly rival mages uh the the, the yeah. one that yeah The big game that I
3: played to get to the end game, I only had one other rival mage that I even met before getting towards the end, Um, and he just got, like, stuck in his shard. I beat him to the second shard for both of us. So, yeah, I never really encountered that with the AI cities, but I would often encounter, like, four monster-generating buildings or whatever they are, the the lairs, that, like, they would all converge on the first spot that i was in and what i ended up doing was i would take a settler send it in like after my elite unit just just to see if you know the coast was clear and immediately build a fort city there and then kind of hunker in that until i could uh you know kind of start clearing out those layers Mm -hmm. and then you just raise the city
2: um or
3: leave it uh the fort cities don't really cost anything so and
2: Uh, in my experience, it was mostly the AI the AI mages who had these big built-up cities um, with a few exceptions. They were monster things. But um, for me, like Rowan, it was finding these lairs of these monsters, especially a couple that were pretty high-powered or just high-powered monsters who were just hanging out.
3: Yeah, those friggin' diamond
0: golems just, they take like 20 Ugh. turns to kill. Yeah, I just ended up in a couple situations where... Um basically it was like trench warfare through a portal where like i'd have my guys Arrayed around a portal to make sure nobody could come through uh, But then if i tried to go through and take out the rival mage it was it was just death all around um, So we've mostly focused on the tactical side of things but and, and i think it's definitely the focus in this game But how did you guys feel about how the strategy aspect uh, You know worked and in particular uh, let's talk about city management a little bit, because I, I think there's some interesting things going on there that sort of strip down the uh, complexity in, in some good ways.
3: Uh, I think that the the general overall strategic and city management aspect kind of goes along with the uh, the less pressure. Um, as you said, you don't really like sitting there waiting for a thing to happen, Rob, and I felt like Warlock tended to have a feel of like something is always happening somewhere that I could be working on um, and one of the ways it does that is that each city is sort of individually managed um, but each of them goes into a whole pool of people uh, A whole pool uh, like an empire-wide pool of uh, mana and food and gold and instead of just like saying you have you know 300 gold it's also telling you how much gold you're getting per turn and how much food you're getting per turn as sort of uh, a are you doing well enough at these right now so you see that you've got like negative 10 gold per turn and negative 10 food per turn then every time you can build something new in your cities it's like Okay, I'm going to have to choose which one of these things that my empire is bleeding to try to work on. Which one of these is more important? Which one of these fits the city that I can build in better? Um, it's it's very in the moment in that way. Um, there's still some planning, but it's like each individual choice you make is like dealing with what's going on in that particular turn. Where I find that uh, a game like Civ or Europa Universalis or whatever. Um, Those are often games where you're playing in the future. You're like, oh man, in twenty turns when this thing gets built, or in five years when this uh, when this treaty ends, this is going to be so cool. And then, like you know, you do that, and the next thing is going to be so cool. But Warlock is always kind of right there, having you make the turns in the moment. Um, Well, almost always. Um, And I find that I don't know, kind of charmingly relaxing.
2: Well, it's not only... But it's also very engaging, because sometimes, like you said, you know, especially in um, a Civ game for me, you find yourself not with really much you could do, but not so in Warlock. You usually have something to do, you, you know, especially when you could increase the generation of other monsters, or if you're playing the Unity mode, um, chances are the, you know, your, your enemy has thrown something at you through one of the other mages under his control. Like the... Um, the one who changes the terrain. That was always really cool. It would be like, oh, a bunch of terrain over here just got changed, making my farm useless. Do I build a farm somewhere else, or do I use a spell to clean that land and redo a farm?
1: I I think the thing that jumps out at me the most about Warlock 2, having not played the original Warlock, is this idea of having one building per hex per population, which... (laughs) It's interesting because it reminds me a little bit of like Warcraft 2 or Starcraft rather than more than civilization, um, which kind of plays into this whole uh, the the fact that Warlock is a lot more of a, a tactical experience than just a pure empire building experience. And as somebody who generally likes that kind of approach, that more combat centric approach, I, I I like it.
0: Yeah, I think that it's it's an interesting thing they did. The the one building per hex per population. So every there's a little gauge on your city. Um, it's a, a, a basically a pie that slowly fills up, and each time it does, your city's grown up grown up by population level, and you can plunk down another building. And I, I sort of you know I I sort of get what you're saying, Rowan, about um, the. The fact that you're kind of just handling whatever your pressing need is in the moment, but at the same time, I, I think that did slow things down enough uh, that it 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 does um, it does let you focus more on, on the tactical and and combat side, but also I I sort of felt like it made the choices I was making with my city maybe even a little more important because. There were there were just enough buildings that were dealing with one of your three major needs, right? Uh, food, gold, and mana. Uh, there, there were just enough buildings that sort of had a uh, multiplying effect on everything else that your city was producing, that it became kind of important to decide early on. Like, is this? Am I really going to be going for growth with the city and have it be building up very quickly as it as it grows, uh, or am I going to be focusing on primarily mana with this? I kind of enjoyed the fact that it sort of forced you uh into that sort of uh you know sort of that civ mode of being like okay well I mean, I have to sort of specialize the city fairly early to do one thing. Uh but without necessarily being as complicated about city management as as civ can be. I definitely enjoyed the the way that um you know that, that sort of gated progress for each city affected my decision making. Uh
3: another another thing that this game does fairly well and uh, i know a lot of um empire building games have you know you can set a city to have your governor run it but in warlock 2 you have like a limit on cities that you're supposed to be able to run and it's a soft limit so you can go over it i was almost always over it Um, but in order to get around that the easiest way is you get a new city and you convert it to something else which is a fortress city which uh, obviously is good for defense or a uh, a free city which generates gold and maybe food it only says it generates gold but it would seem silly that it wouldn't also generate food or a religious city which generates mana and helps the god like you and you can get more spells and build new, build special units if the god likes you enough but uh what i ended up doing is like i build up these cities and then I'd run into the limit, and as I conquer new cities further on, and i take my older cities, not all of them, like some of them were such good food or mana or unit producers that I'd leave them. But, you know, you build the city up for your what you need at the moment, and then you convert it to uh, whatever religious or free city that you need at that point and then you just kind of start the process over again with your new cities on the frontier and i thought that was a fairly clever way around the micromanagement that can get overwhelming um i feel like it could have been a little more robust like i really like i really didn't like having to stop using cities that was like my only one with the minotaur labyrinth or whatever but um that was like an interesting strategic choice that warlock 2 would encourage me to make was like are your minotaur is building new minotaurs so important that you need to deal with the unrest that the city generates
0: can you ever have too many minotaurs though <laughs> uh, you know yeah it's, it's a novel solution to something that like i mean the civilization series has, has battled for years right the problem of city spam uh, you know, Civilization 2, You know, to the guy with the most, uh, to to the empire with the most cities, went the victory by and large. That's kind of how that game worked. And I think their solution by the time you hit Civ Five is get really, really punishing for having too many cities. Uh, and, and this, I think they've they've slowed down city growth just enough, and uh, you know, put a put a soft cap in just enough that I think it's nice to have that managerial workload only be relatively a handful of cities, uh, as opposed to having to make the rounds of your empire, uh, which which gets a little old. To that point, actually, though, did anyone else have a problem with getting units to just go to sleep and stay asleep so you didn't have to deal with them every turn?
3: No, it, you just have to click the arrow button under their normal things, and there's, like, a sentry mode.
2: Yeah, it's just... It, it's not it's not an intuitive game in some ways it doesn't explain everything you just have to do a little bit of hunting for things
0: yeah yeah i I found the Sentry mode thing i just had a few units that just like every turn whether something was around them or not they would be like well we're awake tell us what to do and it's like don't have work for you yet just keep on guarding that frontier all right Uh, see you next turn you you see i didn't have that maybe that was another bug
3: I didn't really have that because i never have city units playing guard mode i'm uh i'm all all front lines all the time which is uh maybe not the wisest but that's just kind of the way i am
0: i i think after a few of those early um you know attacks from behind as other uh as sort of the uh The evil guy's minions started coming at you, uh, you know, via surprise attacks. I was like, oh, I better keep units at home to make sure everything stays cool there. Uh, And then, of course, units stopped showing up and they started using other attacks, like the terraforming attack, um, which... Oh, that that brings me to something else actually really important, which is that I've often felt that in, like, uh, strategy fantasy games... It's really difficult just like with heroes, it's difficult to find the place for magic, right? Like I always felt that in games that were sort of like the Heroes of Might and Magic series or their clones, a lot of times spells were um, either no-brainers, where, like, of course you're going to cast haste on your slow tanky unit that's got to crawl across the map and kill a bunch of stuff. Of course you're going to do that. Um, Or you had nuke spells that were so damaging that, of course, you're going to cast them to just, like, you know, break down the enemy. Rarely did it feel like there was a big... um, that, that magic was either terribly interesting or magical, uh, and that it left you with, with many interesting choices uh, to, to make with regard to magic. And I feel that's sort of a problem that you know runs through uh, this genre to some extent, certainly anything inspired by here's Mind magic. This is one of the few games where I feel the um, free person. I felt the, the the balance the balance was right. Magic felt kind of cool and magical uh, in a way I'm not used to. How did you guys feel about the the, the casting? Love
2: it. I love it. I love that you can change the land around you to fit your needs or to respond to other changes. I love that you can the way you can summon units, the way you can buff units or debuff other units, the way you can use magic to make your farms or your or your treasuries more productive. Um, much better than say in Heroes of Minor Magic, magic actually has a role and magic is very important and if you don't have that mana being generated... Um, for me at least it makes the game not as fun and i would say harder too
3: i think it does two things that make it you know feel kind of magical the first is that there isn't like a separate tactical combat mode so the magic you're not having to like mentally divide magic between blow something up here and then maybe cast something on the world map later it's all on the world map so it's all kind of it has a sort of equally important feel yep Um, and the second thing is that uh there's a time on uh, each spell cast; it takes a certain amount of time and so you can have like six different spells that would be useful for you but you can only cast two of them in a turn or you have one spell that's super useful for you but it takes three turns to cast um so the that kind of prevents it from just being bombarded bombarding enemies with your excess of mana and instead turns it into a, all right, which one of these is going to be the most useful for me right now?
1: Kat, how, how did uh, how did the magic strike you? Well, I thought that the actual leveling up of uh, the tiered magic was pretty smart. And uh, but beyond that, it's just satisfying to use, uh, almost from an artistic standpoint, which uh, I feel... that might be superfluous in the greater strategic balance of things, but I I feel like it's important because if it's not interesting to look at, if it's not satisfying to use, if it doesn't have that right amount of oomph, you start to feel like it, it can actually drag down the whole experience and make it less satisfying. And for a game that's it's called Warlock too, for God's sake! You better get the magic right. So that's an an important thing that I generally feel that it nails.
0: Yeah, I think not to pick on an old wound, I guess, but like you know, if you compare it, to, compare it to like the original Elemental, for instance, and like how magic <laughs> looked and how that magical world looked and how unmagical and pedestrian everything kind of seemed. Uh, you know that, that you, yeah it does matter because if you get it wrong then you can say whatever you want to the player like hey you've just cast the biggest terraforming spell that anyone's seen in eons but if it just looks like if it looks kind of crappy then you don't feel particularly magical at all you just feel like you're playing kind of this uh you know really conventional grindy game
1: i i think i think the worst thing is when you nuke a when you use your nuke spell to destroy everything, or like this is a generic. I'm not referring to yeah. warlock in general. You use your nuke game, and maybe there's a nice effect and everything, but it does half damage to everything, and you're like, "Oh, dang, that's it, okay." <laughs> or even worse, when it it doesn't seem to have any discernible effect at all, and you're just kind of left guessing as to whether it was all that effective or what you were doing wrong
2: yeah, and you know, to Warlock's, you know Warlock did already have the Majesty games to lean on when it comes to its world and the humor that you sometimes see in it.
3: yeah, there's a lot of good responsiveness from the units. You click them to move. They say something funny or just say something in general, and it it it, it gives a sort of satisfying uh, response to your actions. Um, and this is actually came up when i was uh i finally got into playing the uh endless legend uh, early access which i had been looking forward to and like all the things in that game that i had been looking forward to are there and they seem really interesting but it doesn't like have that sort of as a response to your actions you're it just kind of you click on things and they're kind of there and like I think that like if they can work on that presentation, that game could be great. But right now, it's just sort of lacking a, a like feeling that I'm accomplishing things, even though I clearly am. Um, and Warlock does not have that issue. Warlock, there's a uh, a fairly st- clear sense that your actions matter at both like the micro scale of moving units around and seeing your spells have an effect on the world and sort of the macro layer of like each different shard that you jump through and you kind of completely colonize you have that, that uh, feeling that you've like accomplished something beyond simply taking a bit of territory it's like you, you've created a safe harbor and you could, you're ready to move on um, and then I think that's a, a, a good aspect of Warlock 2
0: well, and it obviates the need for, like, worker micromanagement too, right? Like, oh, you can just cast this spell that's going to redo five hexes uh, in a way that, uh, you know, is is totally perfect uh, for you. Uh, and that's, that's going to be just fantastic. Uh, and so you don't have to have some guy, like, out digging irrigation everywhere. You can just do whatever. And I do think it allows for some really cool... Um, it has some cool like strategic uses of spell casting too like when i was at war with the lich king and his undead armies um and i was having trouble sort of grinding through his his lines uh i just cast live, the living land spell that sort of terraformed everything in, a, in on the battlefield into what's called living lands so these really like verdant like magical rainforests uh that A side effect of them is it damages undead units if they're just standing on living lands. And so I was able to just be like, huh, I'm having a hard time, like, you know, fighting through this jerk's kingdom. Beep! You know, and just hit it with living lands. And suddenly I've got home court advantage, uh, which was really, really cool. Um, Of course, then another mage um, cast lower land on one of my um, cities and flooded. Basically every important building that I had, you'd see the flickering ruins uh, below the surface of this new lake that was formed. Uh, So there's definitely like that is an that is an awesome use uh, uh, of magic, I think, which is this completely like um, you know like almost like it promotes like this lateral thinking right where like there's there's really more than one way to get at your enemy uh because you don't just have these heroes and these like uh, pure aggro spells but you can basically reshape the entire world uh in a way that suits you and screws your enemy and i I think the potential for that uh, particularly like in multiplayer would just be would be fantastic
3: and and they escalate very nicely um So, like, at the beginning, like, you're racing to get a spell that, like, raises the land from, like, water to land and then um, plains to hills and then hills to mountains. Like, and that spell takes, like, two turns to cast. And, like, by the end of the game, you're getting these living land spells where you can cast it, like, twice a turn and take over half a shard with your magical forests.
1: It's a really smart approach to a game like this because, I mean, you're playing a 4x strategy game. And you're playing with magic. So it makes sense, I feel, to have so much direct control over the landscape. It it feels like, I mean, in Civilization, you're figuratively reshaping the world. In this one, you're like literally reshaping it.
0: Yeah, it's. I think it's probably the best implementation I, I've seen of this idea. I mean, uh, huge terraforming goes back to like Alpha Centauri, right, where they even had climatological models where if you sort of created mountains, uh, you would change rainfall patterns. Uh, and, and it's sort. Of, I always thought it was a cool feature. Uh, I, I think the. Uh, I, I think uh, Brian Reynolds and company have sort of wondered whether they really succeeded with that part of Elf Centauri. but it was this cool idea uh that didn't really end up playing that all that big a role in in the final game and elemental definitely wanted to have this whole like you are sort of sculpting the land uh, magically and yeah this is this is the first game i think where I, where i really think like yeah basically nailed it uh, in terms of you know, the, does it feel the way it should? Does it feel? Does it feel sort of magical and wondrous? And, and absolutely. And I think it also helps too. I, I just, I really like the art direction on each of the different shards. Like, I like that it it still has this feel of when you go from one world to the next. What's on the other side could be really conventional. Could just be like a desert or whatever. Could, you know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. But you could find yourself in some creepy like you know enchanted forest realm uh you know or, or winter realm that is really kind of shockingly different and really kind of forbidding uh in some ways and i definitely loved the, this whole uh the alienness of, of of the exiled as i played it uh where you know from one realm to the next you you, you did feel like you had completely changed realities
3: there were um like if if the paradox, or the developers, had come to me and said, "What, what about Warlock One? Would you change that? You would take this game that's really good in certain ways and really lacking in others. And the two things that I would have said probably would have been: make the different planes more robust, um, because, as you said, there wasn't that much of a reason to go to them, even though they were really cool." and also have more varieties of units and factions and so there were three factions in the initial warlock and here there are six or seven they've got like an elven faction and the forts or whatever that are like stone creatures and plane striders and so on and uh uh, just added a good variety at both levels to a game that had like a good start but wasn't quite there and i think like other than the tech issues I had, um, which were somewhat descended from the original Warlock, which was also a resource hog. Uh, like, this was what I wanted from the sequel, and uh, they carried it out and did some pretty smart things along the way other than those.
0: Yeah, you know, as as we're approaching the end here, we, we've, we've had a lot of good things to say about this game. I, I think... Setting aside how it's improved over the first one and uh, all the things we liked about it, taken as a whole, uh, how how much did you guys enjoy it? How much do you see yourselves uh, continuing to play it uh, now that it's that now that its moment in the spotlight has passed? for For how long do you think this is going to be installed on your PCs?
2: Well, I think I'll keep it on for a while. I re- enjoyed it. Whereas, you know, if I'm going to have time, is another thing. But I don't plan on deleting it. Um, I enjoyed it even more than the first one. But I would still like to see a little more variety in the. Um, in the factions, um, even though you have the Plain Striders and the Savarts, they didn't feel all that much different than what was already there to me, and I, w- I would like to see something even crazier come out. Oh, Jason, I love the Savarts. Come on. Uh, but they they they, they started to feel just like just another thing to me. Um,
0: Which one of the Savarts? I'm 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 blanking. Viking here. guys. Oh, okay. Uh,
3: I think along with what jason's saying it would be nice if like the the top tier units of each faction were actually still viable at the in the end game um, as i played like i was playing a primarily human faction and eventually picked up some arafi and uh, some plane striders but I almost never used the top tier units at the end i would use my summon summoned dragons and my uh super minotaurs and my heroes and uh, like a greater earth elemental i had been randomly given were always far more effective than the regular units of each faction mm-hmm. so those turned into just primarily like um resource generating the the faction cities turned into resource generators and uh the side um side units that they could get like the golden dragons if you build near a golden dragon egg hatch then they can recruit golden dragons but that any faction can get those so it would be nice if like i could have a superhero unit that uh or not superhero superhuman unit that would actually be able to stand up with those and that would give like the different factions a a a stronger sort of i uh
1: i don't I don't expect that it will be staying on my computer for that much longer. And that's not necessarily a knock in the game itself. It's more of a... I I prefer Starships to to Magic. It's just a a personal preference. Right. Um, (laughs) Beyond that, while I enjoyed the Exile mode, I, I wondered how much I would play it because one of the problems that faces strategy games like these is that often people want more structure but it can be hard to structure them and to give them structure without limiting the experience um i think warlock 2 does an admirable job of giving it some more structure in that mode without uh kind of hindering the gameplay but at the same time my understanding is that uh, there's a lot of scripted elements that kind of limit the replayability a bit. And in that case, I would probably spend more time in the sandbox mode and I, I enjoyed sandbox mode, but e- even in the like over the course of just a couple games, I I found that uh, maybe the AI was a little lacking and um, especially wasn't particularly aggressive um, or difficult and I, I when the AI is, not up to snuff. It can really hurt a strategy game's overall long term prospects. And I'm wondering if anybody has kind of seen the same things that I have.
0: Yeah, you've absolutely kind of nailed my exact feelings on the game. Uh <clears throat> and that's sort of the big caveat for me is that I think exiled mode works because it sort of turns into this PVE quest where you know it's I'm on a strategic level raid uh, with, with my troops and that's fun uh, and there's enough big monsters out there and enough uh, difficult terrain and obstacles to overcome that that I, I feel challenged all the way through. The AI was rarely a an active challenge. Occasionally, there was one that I had to sort of overcome uh, just because they were in the way and they were pissing me off, but for the most part, yeah, my interactions with the AI were either kind of passive, or they kind of of became these minor nuisances, where I just sort of had to, okay, well, have to keep some units here to kill whatever they send at me once in a while, and uh, then, yeah, fine, they're contained, and they're not really a threat, they're not someone I really need to interact with, and that's a big problem, because it does, basically mean that, yeah, I don't think sandbox mode is really going to hold my interest over the long haul because I'm not going to be, it's not going to be cutthroat enough. And I I think, you know, again, it would be a really interesting multiplayer game, but the AI just wasn't able to bring enough concerted pressure against me. Like it couldn't build a big army that actually threatened my cities much. Uh, If I just had a few units in place, I could kind of contain it. And so, yeah, as I, as I start coming to the end here, there's a lot of things I really like about the Exiled, and, and like a lot. And I think the Exiled mode does a really good job of sort of concealing the game's biggest weaknesses. But by the end, I, I think they're, they're kind of apparent, and that, and that a little too passive AI is probably going to be the thing that has me walking away from this maybe sooner than I otherwise would.
3: One of the things that I have been annoyed about by strategy games in general, and I had a long conversation with Troy about this, is just this idea of, like, you're equal competitors, where you have to have AIs or, or humans that can be in multiplayer, who start at the same place as you, have the same, you know, similar sort of resources, and that you're kind of racing against them, Um and instead, I kind of like this idea of, you know, a, an asymmetrical game where it's you against the world. And there may, there may be AIs that are, like, similar sort of rivals, but they don't all have to be in the same place, in the same race, um, ahead of you in tech or whatever. Um, and Warlock 2, I think, does a good job of having, as you said, that PvE thing, like there's usually something like on the frontier ahead of you that is enough of a challenge to go after. And I don't really need to see those other mages that who are doing those other things, because like, it's almost impossible to get an AI that's going to match you perfectly in a sort of equal race. But by making the game as asymmetrical as it is, uh, Warlock 2 ends up being consistently satisfying. And I don't know if that means that I will play it, um, a lot more and you know go back to this and have this be my basic strategy game that i return to but there are like eight of those that could exist and this one could be that um and i think as as we talked about on the banished podcast like there's you know something nice about a game that you can play for a while and be satisfied with and not just have on your hard drive like staring at you like civilization 5 being like you can always play me and lose a week go on do it uh, you know, if I'm satisfied with warlock too, that's cool.
0: Yeah, and you know, but I think there is a difference between sort of building that asymmetric game, and and then kind of leaving parts of your game un- underdeveloped. And I, and I think what we've got here is is I don't think there's really asymmetry because I think the other AI mages are in that same race. They're just racing really, really poorly. And it's sort of the world that the the fact this world is seeded with stuff uh, that's sort of high level uh, that you'll be able to tackle. I guess there's there's your asymmetry, there's your challenge on the horizon, but that's that's sort of a um, you know just get you know get a get a bad enough group of. Uh, you know warriors and mages and everything go out there and, and tackle it that's sort of a different sort of challenge than I, I think where this game could really be interesting which is you have all these cool units and, and, a, and a pretty good tactical system but you don't have a whole lot of opportunity I think to, to use it to its full potential uh, just because uh, not only you know it's not just the AI doesn't know how to use the train. Actually, it seems fine with that. But it's just like the AI can't the AI can't put an army together to to, to push those systems uh, to to what they could be. And that's just that's a disappointment for me. It doesn't kill the game for me, but it does it, it does it's sort of a black mark against against it for me. Uh, just because I can sort of see how cool it would be if the AI were just a little more capable, um, and it just doesn't quite get there.
1: I mean, this is a problem that other bigger strategy games have struggled with, and I would I would put Civilization V and Sins of a Solar Empire in that category where I don't feel like they ever quite nailed down the AI, and it, it's it's unfortunate because you want to feel like you're facing someone who is equally intelligent and when their limitations are sort of laid bare, it starts to feel like you're gaming the system more than you're actually beating a human opponent.
0: Yeah, and when they're consistently laid bare like that, too, I, I think, you know, I would say like a game like Sins of the Solar Empire, it's at least fun enough to stomp the comp and the maps are big enough that like the AI can at least sort of fake it, right? You'll still have those big fleet engagements. You'll still get that cool spectacle. And over time, you start to realize, oh, wow, the, the AI... Yeah, it kind of doesn't know what the hell it's doing. It has no endgame. <laughs> uh, you figure that out eventually, but along the way you're treated to lots of really cool space battles. And I just don't think you get the equivalent here of your your, your really cool mage battles, as it were. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, that is a problem, and... I don't know. I almost feel like maybe the solution is a bit more what Rowan is suggesting about like embrace that asymmetry. I don't know. Like give the AI some sort of crazy head start or an entirely different role to play, rather than saying like, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I'm developing a strategy game. I'm going to create something that's as smart as a human. Stop trying to do that because you're not like you're probably not going to come come up with something that's even remotely adequate. Uh, and so you or, might need to find something more systemic, Rowan.
3: Or if you do then you end up with that World War One situation that can get really frustrating and annoying. Like, yeah. if you have the AI maxing out tactics and you're maxing out tactics, that you have shards that are just pure battleground for years. And the game can really get slow when yeah. you have situations that, like that. Um, like, I, I noticed as I was playing this week that I would, like, load it up, play for three hours, and I'd still be on the same shard. Yep. Um, and, like, I would be entertained the whole time as I would do that, but, like... It, it, it can bog down at certain points.
0: And when you're firing up that reload and you're still the same map, still looking at basically the same position, there's kind of this, oh, yeah, I remember this. Okay. Yeah, I I got to the
3: point where I was fighting the last avatars of the the lieutenants of the United One, and there's this the dragon one shows up, and he's immortal. Like I didn't know this until I got him down from 540 hit points to one hit point, and I couldn't finish him off. So I went on the internet and looked up, alt tabbed and crashed everything. Um, <laughs> so I went on the internet to look it up, and I have to go through the portal and find the guy who's making him immortal and take him out, and I'm just like i whatever man i i can just say that i'm done with this like yeah. this was fun um but uh i i have review games to play yeah
0: no i get it uh so yeah i i definitely think this is an easy recommendation if you're sort of looking for a, a cool fantasy 4x and and you and you dig what you've heard about i think if you're looking for a great 4x strategy game this is maybe a little more of a um. You know, something to, something to pick up when you're not busy with something else, maybe grab it on uh, grab it on sale, because I just don't think it holds up strictly as a 4X, but it really does, I think, end up being a nice harmony of, like, uh, you know, a fantasy RPG and a 4X, uh, just because of the way everything interacts. Um, but anyway, thanks to you all for uh, joining me on a Sunday afternoon. I know that we're all weirdly busy uh, for a weekend, so I'm glad we were able to put this together. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. And uh, until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Good night.